Welcome, everybody. Welcome to the Rabbi Daniel Lappin Show, where your rabbi, that's me, reveals how the world really works. And am I so smart? Do I have this unique insight and extraordinary brilliance to know how the world really works? No, not at all. I've merely been fortunate enough over the years to have been the recipient of great wisdom from outstanding teachers, people who reveal how the world really works. Where do they know it from? They know it from ancient Jewish wisdom, Bible-based information. And uh, on that basis, uh, we understand, and this is an important point, that the Bible is not man's book about God. No! The Bible is God's book about man. The entire Torah system is a comprehensive and, uh, and full picture of how the world really works. And as a matter of fact, one of the items pointed out is that the world itself shows certain insights. How the world really works reveals certain realities. And uh, one example is male and female clothing. And it's interesting because uh, if you look in the animal kingdom, if you look particularly at birds, but also at, at mammals, you will find that the male is much more colorful and more adorned than the female. So, for instance, the lion has a mane decorating his head. The lioness is rather plain. A peacock is the male bird with its resplendent feathers. The peahen, the female, is, is rather plain. And so it is with ducks and so it is with many, many other creatures. The male is more colorful. The female is more plain. Now, I suggest you take a look at uh, any video clip of uh, the smart set arriving at a, uh, a show in Hollywood or at the Cannes Film Festival or anywhere else for that matter. As they walk down the red carpet, you will find that the men are all wearing the same black tuxedo, but the women show up in all colors of the rainbow. When I attend a, a charity banquet or, or some celebratory event, I'm dressed in a black suit. Not only do I look like all the other men there, I actually look exactly the same as the waiters. But the women now, now they are all dressed in every imaginable different kind of dress, different colors, uh, jewelry. It's, um, it's, it's quite a sight. But obviously, the important thing to note is that it is completely different from the animal world. It's exactly the other way around. What is going on here? Well, the difference is that when it comes to animals, all that is the is is all that matters is uh, mating and perpetuation of the species, 
and anim- and ma- the males are in competition with one another, and the female is instinctively programmed to uh, to go for a colorful-looking guy, and off they go. But with men and with women, it's quite different. In the case of human beings, so much more is at stake than just reproduction. It's a case of companionship. It's a case of marriage. Uh, it's a case of the, the future of civilization. And here... The woman chooses, no, not the man who wears the colorful outfit or the weird hairstyle or the bizarre jewelry. No, what she's looking for quite correctly is a man able and willing to submerge his arrogant individualism, a man who is willing to say, I am part of a team. I want you to think well of me, partially because I can show you other men who think well of me. And any smart woman knows that one of the things she should be aware of in choosing a man with whom she will link her fortune and with whom she chooses to spend her life Um, is indeed a man whom other men think highly of, not just a man whom other women like, but a man whom other men like. Now, this, of course, uh, explains part of the appeal of men in uniform, because what does a uniform say other than, hey, this is a man that other men depend upon. This is a man upon whom other men rely upon. And that is very valuable information for any woman deciding with whom to connect, with whom to hitch her wagon and go through the journey of life together. This would also uh, help make sense for those of you who are biblically curious um, as to why it is that in Genesis chapter 3, verse 21, God made for Adam and Eve garments of leather. Uh, You would have thought that when God came along and said, now I'm going to make you these nice leather garments, you would have thought Adam and Eve would say, oh, Lord, don't worry about that. We've got these great green garments, and we like green, because back in the same chapter, verse 7, Right after the eyes of both of them were opened, they became aware that they were naked, and they sewed together uh, fig leaf garments for the both of them. And so you would have thought that they would have simply said to God, hey, don't take your, don't trouble yourself. We've, we've got these nice green garments, these fig leaves, no problem. But uh, again, the Hebrew text, that original text reveals that there was a fundamental difference between the garments they made and the garments God made. This has nothing to do with durability. It actually has to do with, well, shall we say, fashion, because the garments they made out of fig leaves were identical for both of them. They were unisex garments. And for God, men and women wearing the same garments is uh, is, is not acceptable. Why? Because it erodes erotic tension 
In other words, unisex is something God would frown upon. God wants men and women to desire one another. And so it's quite clear from the Hebrew text that the garments that uh, God made was one for man, one for woman, and they were quite different from one another. This is uh, is interesting because apart from anything else, it it tells us that the fashion industry, and uh, and again, it's not that I'm an enormous aficionado of fashion, although I will confess to taking a look from time to time at some of the fashion magazines in order to just try and keep an eye on what is going on there. But this I will tell you, and that is that, there, yes, there is a spiritual and godly element to fashion because clothing is not merely utilitarian. If it was, then all we would do is we'd make zippered overalls uh, like mechanics wear or like I wear if I'm working in the engine room of a boat, Uh, Yeah, I've got a perfectly good, durable, hard-wearing, strong fabric overall, and I step into it, and I put my, my arms into the sleeves, and then I zip it all the way up the front, and I'm covered from head to toe, ready to go. Easy to get into, easy to get out, perfectly utilitarian, and yet I would never show up at a charity banquet wearing that. Why? Because we are not animals. We are people, and clothing is not merely utilitarian. It's not just there to keep us sheltered or not just there to conceal the parts of the body we're uncomfortable displaying in public. No, it's much more than that. And so uh, when we buy a branded piece of clothing, there's something going on there that reveals that human beings are touched by the finger of God. I'm not endorsing uh, or, or suggesting that very expensive garments, simply because they carry a picture of a little crocodile on the on the pocket of the T-shirt, are, are worthwhile, or that that makes sense. But overall, in terms of understanding that clothing is so much more than just utilitarian. As a matter of fact, one of the Hebrew words for clothing, uh, levush actually translates literally into for uh, dignity or for embarrassment. You know, it's, it's to protect us from embarrassment. Our clothing is very important. And anyone who's ever had the unpleasant experience of showing up inappropriately clothed for an event, an event where you expected people to be dressed one way and you came another way, uh, you come overdressed or underdressed, you know how uncomfortable that is. If clothing was just utilitarian, it wouldn't make the slightest bit of difference. Now, I realize, of course, that uh, all of this can easily be interpreted um, in a secular evolutionary fashion. Uh, somehow the idea that, uh, that clothing is part of an evolutionary adaptation. Um, but, you see, um, if we look at it in... Uh, in an objective kind of a way, then that really is a little bit of a push. Hard to understand why, from a secular evolutionary perspective, that particular adaptation of of remarkable clothing and men uh, adopting clothing different from animals, where men wear clothing that shows we're part of the team, we're part of a men's group, as opposed to the individualism that women appropriately display— yeah, you probably could. But you see, if that unshakable conviction that human beings are on this planet only as the result 
of an unaided materialistic process of evolution over a long period of time, if that is your guiding belief, then you won't consider any other possibility. You will look at what I've just pointed out about the difference between how men and women uh, dress in humans and male and female in animals. You'll say, well, it's got to be some kind of uh, evolutionary adaptation process, surely. But if you are genuinely open-minded, if you are genuinely scientific in the sense that you only accept provable and reproducible phenomena as facts, then you have to be open-minded about humans being different from all other creatures. That's fairly straightforward. And there are many, many other instances, uh, for instance, such as the baculum which appears in many, many, in, in fact, I can easily say overwhelmingly the majority of mammals, including whales, by the way, have a thing called a baculum. Now, you might well say, Rabbi Lappin, what on earth is a baculum? And I will tell you, a baculum, a baculum, a baculum is a, um, a, a, a sort of a, well, it's a penile bone. Uh, which shows up in many, many, and as I say, the majority of mammals, which, uh, shall we put it this way, it would make um, Viagra entirely unnecessary. It's, it's something that uh, utterly removes the psychological dimension of, uh, of, of human uh, physical connection, and, uh, and it, it takes care of it as a purely utilitarian process. Uh, it makes the male capable of copulation regardless of any circumstances. And so surely, again, looking at this, if you really are scientific and open-minded, then uh, evolutionary adaptation would suggest that uh, human beings should indeed have such a device. That's how we should be constructed. But we're not. And my approach is to be totally scientific and open-minded and not look at anything, any phenomena that are not reproducible and are not uh, verifiable uh, or, uh, or provable as factual phenomena. I look at this and say, you know, uh, this does look as if human beings have been created with certain goals in mind. And one of them is that the connection between male and female, the physical connection between male and female, has to, in fact, depend upon a spiritual and psychological component, without which the connection doesn't take place. You see, there are different approaches. One either takes a secular approach or a religious approach, or one is at least open-minded. And if one is open-minded, then some of these things that I'm talking about really do compel honest inquiry and do compel the honest and open-minded observer towards certain conclusions that suggest that perhaps the unaided materialistic approach does not quite explain everything. Uh, before I pause for just a moment, as usual, as is my custom, I suggest, recommend, and request that you visit our website at rabbidaniellappin.com. 
the place to uh, send in questions, to make comments, to let me know of anything on your mind, a place to take a look at our store where the resources I am recommending for your attention today, if you don't already have them, are uh, resources that uh, address language, particularly the Lord's language, Hebrew, uh, which, again, in and of itself, if you subjected to rational, objective, scientific, open-minded inquiry, does suggest that there is something very distinctive about this language, something that makes it quite different from all other languages, and something that again suggests that human linguistic creation, clearly unique to human beings, and uh, for those of you interested, I refer you back to a number of shows ago where I discussed Coco, the so-called talking chimpanzee. You can find that if you just go back on the list of shows. And uh, uh, Hebrew does emerge as something that makes you scratch your head and say, well, I used to be a secular fundamentalist, but I, you know, I'm really not sure anymore. At the very least, I'm going to be open-minded about this. And so the uh, the two books are, number one, something called Buried Treasure, Life Lessons from the Lord's Language, a fabulous book available either on Kindle download or in paper, and uh, also one for children uh, called the Alphabet Book. And what's great about that is that um, it's it's meant for children, and yes, you can read it to children and enjoy it, but you will also find that as an adult, there is much there to tickle your fancy and uh, to at least raise thoughtful questions in your mind. I think you'll enjoy it. Okay, quick pause. We back with you continue with the Rabbi Daniel Lappin show, revealing how the world really works, talking now about sleep and hibernation. Okay. Uh, imagine you uh, caught yourself a, a little, well, not hard to catch, a hibernating ground squirrel, right? Uh, pretty soon, I mean, I'm recording this in November 2018, so uh, we're entering winter. You'll still see the occasional squirrel scampering around, but pretty soon they're going to go into hibernation. So let's imagine you get hold of a uh, squirrel in hibernation, you get into its nest, and uh, you extract a little blood, just a, a, a small syringe full of blood from the squirrel. He's barely going to notice it. I doubt he'll even wake up. Um, I'm not sure I'm actually suggesting you try this, but if you want to, it would make for a fascinating homeschool science experiment, I can tell you. So you take this little vial of, of blood you withdrew from a sleeping, hibernating squirrel, Keep it now until July. That's right. And now you've got your work cut out for you. I want you to use a nice big net and capture yourself a squirrel scampering around the park. And uh, now inject into him that same blood you took out of his cousin six months or seven months ago. Do you know what's going to happen? Yeah, he's going to go into hibernation. Isn't that amazing? He's going to immediately nod off and he's going to head back to his nest and lie down and he's going to be out for a while. Uh, that's what's going to happen. Now, we don't clearly understand whether it's cold weather that sets off a chemical change in squirrel blood that tells it it's time to, 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 to hibernate. Uh, but we obviously know that hibernation helps animals endure the winter because 
a hibernating animal requires only a tiny fraction of the energy it needs while it's awake. So hibernation, therefore, becomes a state in which the animal's metabolism slows down and its heart rate slows down so dramatically that they can easily last the winter on their accumulated fat. And that's exactly what you know animals like bears do. But interestingly enough, their brain activity remains completely unaltered, as far as we can tell. Now, we humans obviously do not hibernate. We do sleep, however. And here's the interesting thing. You might have thought that our metabolism slows down when we sleep and our energy consumption goes down when we sleep. Not true. As a matter of fact, the drop in our energy needs while we're asleep is negligible. Um, A sleeping person has about a 5% drop in energy needs and metabolism activity. It's not much at all. It's basically, as I said, negligible. But there are vast changes in our brain from our waking state. Uh, So I think I would be accurate in saying that hibernation chiefly affects the body, while sleep also, if not chiefly, but also affects the brain. Now, you already, if you're a regular listener here, then you know that in Hebrew, in the Lord's language, when one word applies to two apparently different ideas, we gain a great deal of understanding about the world by relating those two ideas and treating them as if they are actually a unified overall theme. Let me give you an example of what I mean. The Hebrew word for sleep also means the Hebrew word for a year, 365 days. All right. And by the way, if you if you might be interested in the references here, uh, if you are, uh, write down Proverbs 20.13. The phrase is, do not love sleep lest you become impoverished. It's talking about sleeping in the daytime. Not, obviously, not sleeping in the nighttime is good, but sleeping in the daytime is problematic. And uh, so that word in the Hebrew there used for sleep is exactly the same word as used in Genesis chapter 5, verse 3, and Adam lived 130 years. And, and so we've got this identical word used for sleep and years. What does that mean? But wait, it gets even more interesting. Just, you know, jot down uh, sleep and years, because if you actually see those two words in front of you, you might start seeing a potential connection. And I'm going to give you two more verses. This one is in the second book of Samuel, chapter 20, verse 10. And I'll read it to you. This guy called Amasa was not vigilant about the sword that was in Yoav's hand. And so since he wasn't vigilant, Yoav managed to strike him with a sword and um, penetrate his fifth rib. And he spilled his innards onto the ground. Uh, Amasa uh, did not, Yoav did not repeat the blow and Amasa died. That word repeat is exactly the same word I've been talking about for years and sleep. Sleep, year, and repeat. And finally, one more. Psalms 89 verse 35. I will not desecrate my covenant and I will not change the utterance of my lips. Again, the same thing. So um, this is strange, is it not? 
Let me once again repeat the four words that are obviously connected in some way because they all have the same Hebrew word, which, by the way, is shana. And so the words are sleep, year, repeat, and change. I wonder if you're starting to see something. It's very exciting. It's weird, is it not? So repeating means doing the same thing again and again. But change means doing something different. So why would one word in Hebrew be both repeat and change? And what possible message is God giving us uh, through his language linking these two opposite concepts along with year and sleep? Look, uh, here is the problem, the, the trap into which we human beings can all fall. It's the easiest thing in the world. And that is that uh, we uh, do the same thing today as we did yesterday, which all but guarantees that tomorrow will be the same as today, right? If today you do all the same things you did yesterday, then tomorrow will be the same as today. The only way to make tomorrow different from today is to make the things you do today different from the things you did yesterday. Now, animals hibernate to cope with the present problem of wintry weather. And then in the spring, they awake from hibernation, and they continue doing exactly what they were doing in the fall. In other words, animals endlessly repeat last year's activities. Their pattern is one of repetition. But we human beings, all right, we are not animals. Touched by the finger of God, we are capable of changing. So we could view sleep as nothing more than a human version of hibernation with the whole focus on the biological component. We can see a new year as simply a calendar reality. New Year's Eve parties can be an attempt to camouflage that dreary passage of time and the gloomy likelihood that the coming year will repeat the mistakes of the one just fading away. But there's an alternative, right? We can also see how different we are from animals and that every single day we are blessed with the ability to start afresh and to bring out new changes that improve our lives. Each and every one of us, tomorrow morning, we can awake with a smile on our faces, a prayer on our lips, thanking God for restoring us to life, and with hope and happiness and optimism in our hearts as we embrace a new day. Every time we go to sleep can herald a new resolution of change and growth and improvement, just as obviously every yearly cycle can do the same. And so uh, every evening, we human beings can set an agenda to make the next day somewhat better than the day before. And um, obviously, December 31st, we can do the same thing, which is the whole uh, essence of what people think of as New Year resolutions. But essentially, we can pick from two contrasting and incompatible equations. Remember, I told you these four words, right? The four words are year, sleep, repeat, and change. So here are the two possible equations. One year, one equation is sleep equals year equals repeat. Means that's what we do. 
sleep is just like a new year you know every new year is like waking up from a sleep and you just repeat what you did last year just like squirrels do or we can do something entirely different this equation reads sleep equals year equals change and that's why these four words sleep year repeat and change are all one word in hebrew we're not animals we can choose the second equation sleep equals year equals change it's beautiful isn't it it's really very interesting and there's a fifth word as well the fifth word is study so it's sleep year repeat change and to study or grow or learn and I think it's obvious that uh, by being human beings, we're capable of growing intellectually and using that new knowledge to fuel our determination to change. It's, It's really rather magnificent. But wait, that's not all about sleep. There's still more. But first, the, uh, the website again. Um, as you know, the great thing about human economic interactions are that they make God smile. Why do they make God smile? Well, just think about it. You walk into a store, total stranger greets you warmly, asks if he can help you, takes care of your needs, and at the end of it wishes you a good day. And you now walk out of the store with um, whatever it is, right? Your pair of shoes you just bought or whatever it is. And if somebody came up to you now and said, hey, would you like to undo the transaction, get your money back? You'd probably say, no, I've been looking for days for this pair of shoes in my size. I'm very happy. And if somebody went to the storekeeper and said, hey, somebody walked out with a pair of your shoes. Do you want to undo the transaction? He says, no, you don't understand retail bookkeeping. I'm better off now since that person came into my store. And so you've got two human beings who are happier than they were beforehand. And this is why it is that the Hebrew word for economic transaction, as well as the Hebrew word for store, chanut is the word, by the way, um, is the same word that is related to the he- uh, Jewish holiday of Chanukah, uh, also having to do with money. And uh, I've discussed that in one of our uh, audio shows on our website. But the idea is that an economic transaction is something that leaves both people better off than they were before. And uh, this is really one of the uh, huge secrets of why Jews have been disproportionately good with money. Uh, There is an understanding that when you sell some goods or services to another human being, you're not ripping them off. You're not taking their money. You are helping them and you together. And that's why it is that uh, I try and explain. Sometimes people write to me very upset that I spoil all the elevated material about how the world really works in this show by finishing off each segment with a flagrant and shameless financial marketing plug. No, uh, it's, it's a way of doing you good and doing me good. Um, there's no force involved. I'm not like the government taking your tax money. I'm not like a hold-up artist uh, taking your money at the point of a gun. No, I'm saying visit our website and you may well see something there that could dramatically enhance your quality of life in the areas of finance, family, friendships, faith. And if you purchase one of those things, you will be doing yourself good and you will be doing me good. So the website is rabbidaniellappin.com. Enough said. Back with you in just Rabbi Daniel Lappin. Here, your rabbi dedicated to revealing for you how the world really works. 
and obviously sleep is an essential part of it, and how we wake up in the morning is an essential part of it. So uh, uh, let me read to you two verses. Uh, Both of them are from the book of Judges, chapter 16, and they concern Samson, that famous guy. Uh, chapter 16, verse 14 of the book of Judges. Uh, And Delilah said, The Philistines are upon you, Samson. And he awoke from his sleep. Four verses, uh, six six verses later, uh, Judges, chapter 16, verse 20. And Delilah said, The Philistines are upon you, Samson. And he awoke from his sleep. Now, as I read these uh, two verses in standard English translation, they both sounded exactly the same. But um, you see, there is a reason that I say everybody needs a rabbi. And uh, the reason is that in the Hebrew text, they're actually different. The first time that he awoke, the word for awoke has an extra letter implying a higher quality process, uh, a, a, a more spiritually affirmative process. Samson awoke in an elevated state. But the second time when he woke in verse 20, she'd already cut his hair. And this time he awakens um, in a lesser state. He's, uh, he's, he's slid down a notch now, and he's no longer uh, possessed of God's protection. And so not surprisingly, it's a different Hebrew word. It's a different kind of awakening. And, um, and so uh, what, what we learn from this is that for each and every one of us, obviously, there's two different kinds of getting up in the morning. Uh, there's the kind where we sort of reluctantly end our sleep and we rub our eyes and uh, we're wondering what to do. Should we leap out of bed or should we press the snooze button and sleep for another 15 minutes? And, uh, and that's the, 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 the second kind of awakening alluded to in Judges chapter 16. Uh, whereas the person who leaps out of bed forces himself to leap out of bed and uh, gets immediately into the mood of, of getting ready for a day's struggle and fight and challenge and achievement, different, different kind of wakening up. And uh, the kind of day we have very often is a function of just how it is we get up and what we do in the morning. And these are, are really very significant factors having to do with uh, human beings and sleep. I also want to tell you that uh, it's very uncertain in the world of science exactly what sleep is all about. As we all know, you need it, and we all know that uh, your performance goes down if you hadn't have, had enough sleep. We, we, we know that. But exactly what this mechanism is, not only in the human organism, but in all other creatures, not well known at all, not well understood at all. Uh, I've done a lot of reading over the last few months on sleep, trying to see if there have been any recent developments. And the developments are are sort of mostly uh, clinical rather than analytical, if you know what I mean. In other words, they talk about improving sleep, etc. But uh, in terms of um, why we need sleep and what, you know, why why didn't evolution produce an organism that doesn't need sleep? I mean, the advantages are enormous. You're far less vulnerable to predators. 
Uh, you can do much more hunting and gathering. You would you would thrive and get fat and full. So I, you you would think that that sleep by now could have been adapted away from the human organism. But however, uh, for those of us who are open to the idea that human beings are on this planet not because of a lengthy process of unaided materialistic evolution, but we're here because a higher being created us and put us here with the intellectual ability to analyze our circumstances and to try and understand what we are and what we are to strive for, well, there's a completely different approach there, and uh, our understanding of sleep is entirely different. What is it? Well, let me, let me try and uh, explain, explain that a little bit. Um, okay, so um, I, I would say this, that um, I, okay, I observe the Sabbath. I mean, it's a lifesaver for me. Sun, Friday afternoon, the sun goes down, I'm off. My, my phone is off. My computer is off. My com, my uh, everything. I mean, everything is is off and down, and I am in a different mode over there now. Uh, people who think nothing of asking me why do you observe the Sabbath? You're wasting time. One seventh of of your life is is gone. Uh, those same people would never say to me, why do you waste your time sleeping? Because they get the idea of sleep. But they don't get the idea that one day a week is to the week what a night's sleep is to the day. So withdrawing from economic interactions with the world during the Sabbath and withdrawing from forceful, deliberate interactions in which I am willfully imposing my desire and intent on the world with which I interact. Uh, Okay, I don't think any of this lessens my productivity. I think it enhances it. In other words, uh, to quote from the Ten Commandments in Exodus chapter 20, six days of creativity depend for their effectiveness upon the one day of rest and what I would call retreat. And I think of this in terms of thrust and retreat. For six days, I am thrusting against the world, trying to get my will and my desire. One day I retreat, I pull back completely. Well, that's the same as day and night. During the daytime, I'm pushing against the world, I'm thrusting against the world, but in the nighttime, I retreat completely. And uh, and my effectiveness during the day is obviously dependent upon my retreat during the night. What is more, I think we can actually help our subconscious work for us by taking advantage of uh, this principle of thrust and retreat. So in other words, um, what what I do, and I recommend that you try it if you don't already do it, is that if you're dealing with a problem, set yourself 15 minutes. You can even use, as I do, one of these uh, kitchen timers that I set. That way I know I'm not going to 
uh, slide off into a lengthy period of daydreaming or anything. Uh, I set the timer for 15 or 20 minutes, and then I devote myself to trying to concentrate during that time on the problem. And I grapple with it, and I deal with it from different angles. But I know that I'm probably not going to get a solution. It's not as if I'm going to have a eureka-like aha moment. Oh, I got it now. No, I'm not necessarily counting on that. If it happens, that's great. But at the end of the time, my my little alarm rings, and I put it away, and I get back to whatever else I'm doing. And if I do that in the uh, in the afternoon or late in the day, there's a very good chance that during the night, my subconscious is going to work on it. And I'm sure that if you're a regular listener to the show by now, you are accustomed to keeping a notepad and pen next to your bed because uh, you are likely to wake up. And uh, if you do, you will be shocked to find that you've made progress on that problem. You've thought of something you didn't have available before. Years ago, I used to have a pen with a light built into it. I can't tell you how, like every time I get on a plane, you know those shopping catalogs they have in the seat back in front of you? I I nearly always uh, rush through that looking for this pen. It's kind of just the thing you'd think would be in that sort of catalog. But um, uh, because when I wake up in the night and, uh, right, I don't want to put the light on. And so I very often find that I'm scribbling the thought that occurred to me, and it has happened on occasion that I simply, <laughs> I cannot read what I wrote in the morning. But um, anyway, that is the concept, okay? That's that's the idea. Now, I also need to explain that um, that God has created a world, again, from my perspective, and uh, I think from the perspective of anyone who's open-minded, you might well say, well, you know, he thinks God created a world this way. I'm not at all sure of that, but I'm I'm open to what he's saying. I'm open to the theory, right? That's one way of one way of looking at it. God created a world with rhythms and cycles, and in general, when we try and defy them, uh, we function less effectively. Uh, jet lag, which I suffered from uh, extensively, um, both last week on my way to Europe and this week when I got back from Switzerland, um, these when you rapidly move through time zones, you are overriding the sort of circadian rhythm that's built into our bodies. And our bodies operate on a, a day-night rhythm, and as a matter of fact, there are even um, secretions by different glands in our bodies, potassium, for instance, that are very impacted by light and dark, by day and night cycles. And even if you move onto an artificial light-dark cycle, in other words, uh, in a lab, you set up lights go to operate, you know, to wind down to simulate uh, sunset and nightfall, and then they go up again in the morning. To sim- but if you move them onto an eight-hour instead of a 12-hour cycle, uh, you mess up the body. And, you know, initially the uh, secretion sticks to its 12-hour cycle, but pretty soon it starts adjusting to this false artificial eight-hour cycle. Anyways, one of the most compelling natural rhythms that are, are, are built into nature is that powerful and significant processes almost never occur in lengthy, uninterrupted 
unidirectional thrusts. Um, let me explain what I'm what I'm what I'm trying to say here. Important life processes, um, whether it's on the intellectual or physical biological level, they always work on thrust retreat, thrust retreat, push pull back, push pull back, not on a constant, sustained, non-interrupted thrust. Think of breathing, for instance, right? We don't breathe by means of a never-ceasing suction system, but if you think about it, why not, right? That wouldn't be so hard. Our noses could be like, like little vacuum cleaners, just gently sucking in air nonstop day and night. And then periodically, we could expel the carbon dioxide that our body produces, uh, you know, just as we periodically expel other waste that our bodies produce, right? You know, every few hours or, or whatever it is, there'd be a process whereby you'd expel the carbon dioxide. But the breathing could be a nonstop intake of air, just, just as I think any engineer would probably have designed the human being. But that's not how it works. We breathe in and then out, in and out, exert and relax, air out, air in, push and retreat. All our lives, that's what we're doing in breathing. Why do we sleep? Well, I, I, um, I, I'm not ashamed to tell you I don't know because the most recent article I saw in Science magazine uh, listed that question of why we sleep as one of the top 100 questions of science. There are many theories, but nobody really knows why we sleep. All I can tell you is that it fits into God's pattern for productive processes. Exert and relax, thrust and retreat, advance and pull back, wake and sleep. And, um, and if you think about most productive human interactions— they also work that way. Think of conversation. Do you know how exhausting and unproductive it is to be spoken at endlessly? Conversation works best when we talk and then listen. Again, the same pattern of exert and withdraw. The most stimulating conversations are when you pause and let the other person speak, and then they pause and then you respond. But again, from your point of view, it's thrust and retreat. It's push and pull back. You're pushing your idea out, and then you're ceasing, and then you're accepting the other person's push in towards you. That's that's how conversation productively works. Um, how about, and here I want to be a bit euphemistic because there are often young people listening to, to the show, um, in the process of um, uh, in the reproductive processes of both conception and birth. Now, there's a reason why in ancient Jewish wisdom, uh, the word conceive applies to both ideas and uh, reproductive conception. The same thing is true in, in English, isn't it? People say, I conceived of a great idea. Or somebody might ask, how did you conceive of that? But at the same time, we could say, uh, you know, I was conceived in that very room, you know, something like that. All right. So in that process, processes, those, I mean, and what could be more fundamental and life affirming in life than conception and birth? And in both of those, 
the process is thrust and retreat. Um, let me make sure that you follow exactly what it is I'm trying to say. Um, you, you could imagine that once again, if designed by an engineer, the conception process could involve penetration, ejection of seed, and withdrawal. Done. One simple, direct, unidirectional process. In ejection of seed, withdrawal. Finished. But it's not how God designed it. Integral to the process is a thrust and retreat. And the same is true for birth, of course. Uh, during birth, contractions squeeze, and then the expectant mother has this pause before the next exertion. That's how it works again. It's very interesting. Um, at least I find it so. I hope you do as well. Uh, in the late 19th century, Thomas Edison built an electrical power station in Manhattan and for the first time in history lit up local streets and buildings with electricity. Now, the kind of electricity that he used was called direct current. Now, direct current, or DC, is what you get out of a battery, and again, it is just constant push, steady, constant, unidirectional current flow. Uh, the electrons are just constantly pushing and exerting in the same direction. But soon, the world switched for electric, electrical transmission, the world switched to what's called alternating current, or AC, that uh, I think had been worked on by Nikola Tesla. And there, the electrons push and then retreat, push again and then back off. And uh, elect uh, alternating current, AC, works better. Uh, for one thing, you can have transformers working with AC, but not with DC. There are a lot of other reasons why it works better as well. Uh, it works better. To me, it's not a mystery because it fits the natural rhythms of God's world. And it's interesting that if you look at the wave form of alternating current, it looks like that green wave on the monitor next to a hospital patient's bed first up in one direction and then down in the reverse direction, push and retreat, exert and relax. That's how the world works. And that's just why it is that Exodus 20 uh, verse 8 says, remember the Sabbath day in order to make it holy. Six days you must exert and achieve all your creativity. My translation, but absolutely accurate. And the seventh day, the Sabbath for the Lord your God, do not achieve any creativity. Sabbath is made up of the two components, exert and retreat. Uh, my week is made up of six days of work and then retreat. My day and night, six days of work and then retreat. It's something we all need. It's essential. And um, what happens if we don't get enough of that retreat? Well, the answer to that explains why Last week's podcast was actually up for only a day or so, and then we pulled it down. And uh, my appreciation to the whole team that makes this all work, that they did, in fact, get it down as I requested. But why did I request for last week's podcast to come down? And what does it have to do with sleep? Well, that I'll tell you in the next short concluding segment We're back again, show. final segment of today's show. 
Uh, a few years ago, while Susan Lappin and I were crossing the Pacific Ocean in our sailboat with our family, uh, and yes, it was quite an adventure, 22 days it was, but um, on one particular occasion, and I remember this very clearly, it was um, a- about a week after we left. Uh, we left the California coast, we left Marina del Rey, Los Angeles, and uh, Um, We left on the 4th of July, as it turns out, and about a week later, it was close to the middle of the month, when um, I woke, or maybe I I came off shift, I think, and I checked the water. I I used to check our water tank every day, um, because obviously I needed to monitor our water consumption. Um, We did not have a, a water maker, it was a sailboat, and uh, desalinators, which are common on power boats, and they're wonderful devices, but they consume huge amounts of electricity. So you need a, a generator. Not having that on on our boat, we uh, we we had a few hundred gallons of water, and so we conserved it. And we, uh, you know, when we boiled potatoes, for instance, we used seawater. We didn't use uh, fresh water. When we washed dishes, we used uh, seawater, and we discovered. Uh, through the boating fraternity that joy dishwashing liquid suds up perfectly adequately in salt water doesn't need fresh water so by various uh, such techniques we were able to protect our water supply and I found we were generally using well under what I had uh, planned for the whole for daily boat consumption for the trip this one particular night it was the middle of the night I hadn't yet uh, got into the, the the rhythm again of the boats. I was still tired. You know, the watch-keeping schedule had me a bit zombie-like part of the day. And uh, in the that particular night, I did my usual. I lift the floorboards, unscrewed a, uh, a sort of uh, a uh, an inspection port, drop in my four-foot-long stick that has markings on it that I'd uh, calibrated to the uh, gallon um, capacity of the tank and then each you know each each day I'd pull it out and see what our capacity where we were at what the 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 contents were you just see what part of the stick is damp well on this particular occasion I withdraw the stick and I am shocked the adrenaline starts pumping because there's no water and uh my mind starts racing. How did it get out? Uh, was it a leak? In in which case it should be in the bottom of the boat, or was one of the pumps faulty and it just pumped all the water out? Some. It's a huge problem. You know, I've got my family on board. We we got a long. Even if we turned around back to Hawaii, back to the United States, it would take as long as it would take to keep going to Hawaii because of the direction of the wind. So this was not a simple problem. And I'm starting to calculate uh, how many bottles of beer do we have on board and can you really give little children beer? And then I'm starting to think about, you know, canned veggies have, you know, you have a can of peas that's got water in it. Canned fruit has a certain amount of liquid. I'm thinking all of these thoughts and uh, I'm really beside myself. And uh, at that point, I, I'm so tired, I lie down on my bunk and I sleep till um, I'm supposed to get up again. When I get up again, the first thing I do is go straight back to the water tank and measure it. And uh, you won't be horrified to hear that the water was fine. 
I totally misread it in the night. Um, through what? Sheer exhaustion. And perhaps one of my sort of deep subconscious fears projecting itself onto my uh, sleepy condition made me read the, the stick as if there was nothing there. The, the tank was empty. Uh, this was a very good lesson, but one that should have stayed with me longer than it actually did. What am I talking about? The idea that when you do not have enough sleep, it impacts the rest of your 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 waking time. I think everybody knows this. Pretty basic. But uh, I, I think a lot of people do not get as much sleep as they actually need. I suspect that each and every one of us really needs more sleep than we're getting. You know, I'm, I'm not saying you need nine, ten hours or anything. Uh, maybe you don't even need eight. But many of us, for extended days, function around five hours or four and a half hours. And I am more and more convinced that that is not adequate. And uh, it certainly was not in my case because I uh, had a series of speeches in Switzerland recently um, flew over. It's a, it's a five-hour time change when I went. The clock in America changed while I was away to, to, uh, from daylight savings time to regular, and uh, I, it was six hours coming back. So at any rate, I get there. I'm jet-lagged, plus I've got speeches to prepare and get ready for, and uh, I do a speech, and there's you know a lot of uh, conversation with people afterwards. I I don't get to bed till very late. The next day is another intense day of meetings, and then a speech, and then uh, it's almost sunset, and it's uh, the end of my day. It's Friday, and it's almost time for me to stop work for the Sabbath. But I haven't done the podcast yet. I had uh, a pretty clear idea that I wanted to talk about the Pittsburgh synagogue shooting, and I, I wanted to uh, discuss a perspective on it that uh, blamed um, mental problems often found in isolated males uh, more than anti-Semitism. I wanted to argue that anti-Semitism requires a, a level of sophistication and education uh, just simply not liking Jews is in and of itself perhaps not really befitting the definition of anti-Semitism. And then I wanted to go into the whole question of what is the definition of anti-Semitism anyhow? So I had a pretty good idea. I, I had notes worked out, but I didn't pay attention to the fact that I had not had enough sleep. I was tired. And I went ahead and uh, recorded the show um, sent it in, it got posted, and quite a lot of people uh, listened to it, and uh, uh, some people liked it, but some people didn't. At any rate, uh, it wasn't long, I think it was maybe Saturday night or Sunday morning, that uh, Mrs. Lappin got hold of me and said, you've got to pull it, it's no good. And, you know, my policy is that we are a unit, we're we're married, we we are together. There is nothing she can do that doesn't affect me. There's nothing I can do that doesn't affect her. Uh, if I do something unhealthy, she's got a right to say, you're impacting my life, if not now, then in the future. Uh, if she could do many things that that, that she doesn't, that, that could diminish the value and quality of my life. So I realized that, and, and I realized, therefore, that 
I speak for both of us. And uh, that, you know, other than a few exceptions, usually lighthearted things that crop up, for the most part, uh, I like to make sure that what I'm saying is something she agrees with. Very often she helps me compose it, and in this case, she didn't. And so um, uh, I, I asked her why, and she said, because you won't like the way you sound. You sound as if you literally don't care that 11 Jews were shot at a synagogue in Pittsburgh. You're treating it completely intellectually, and you sound callous. Well, I uh, immediately asked the uh, people in charge to pull the uh, the podcast so it was no longer accessible and uh, uh, they were kind enough to take care of that instantly and immediately and sure enough we got lots and lots and lots of emails and queries on our website at rabbidaniellappin.com as to what happened to the the podcast and uh, we tried to explain but basically it is here and now that I'm explaining what happened and um, and so the podcast was up for only a very short time before it was pulled from all platforms. And that was the reason. And uh, Mrs. Lappin was absolutely right. Uh, I didn't like the way I sounded. So how could I have done that? And the answer is <laughs> exhaustion. I, I There wasn't enough retreat with the thrust. There wasn't enough relaxing with the pushing. There just simply wasn't enough sleep. And uh, I repeated exactly what I did at the time of our Pacific crossing to Hawaii. I made a mistake. And uh, and so the the substance of the podcast was, was solid. And I do want to um, impart that to you. Uh, I, I do want to talk, and I'm not doing it now, but, but therein I was speaking about... Um, the the fact that many things that today pass for mental disorder are things that are actually spiritual conditions, not mental disease or mental disorder. And um, I spoke about how it was that the cost of mental medicine in America has been skyrocketing, climbing up exponentially, but it began when? About 1962, which is the date... I tend to assign to the secularization of America. So in other words, psychologists and psychiatrists have replaced priests and pastors. And I want to uh, I, I wanted to talk and explain how that was and how it was that uh, that it would appear that the majority of shootings, if not driven by Islamic um, uh, hatred and um, and uh, Islamic activism, uh, they tend to be, for the most part, alienated and very isolated uh, single males. And I, I discussed more of that. Anyway, uh, I will either edit that podcast and release it, or I will redo it entirely. But we will come back to that. But for now, that is the background to what happened last week. And uh, I apologize. I'm sorry about it. Uh, for those of you who heard it, I apologize as well. Uh, what you heard was not what I wanted to sound like. It was not the mood or the tone I wanted to convey. For those of you that didn't hear it, uh, that's just as well. I'm pleased you didn't. And uh, the substance and value of the podcast, I will still 
convey at a later date. Meanwhile, for now, that's as far as we can go for this show. So thanks so much for being part of the show. Thank you for helping to promote it, to get the word around to other people. I don't know how you you're doing it. I guess some of you are sending out links. Some of you are telling people about it on Facebook and on Twitter. Uh, whatever it is you're doing, I really appreciate it because the more people that listen, the more valuable the podcast can, becomes to me and the more uh, I can put into it. And uh, for in, I mean, one of the things, for instance, that I'm actually thinking of uh, trying to do, and I will once we reach a certain figure of listenership, is uh, to actually release a video aspect. Many, many, many people currently listen to the podcast on YouTube, but they're only listening. There's nothing to actually see. Uh, There is a possibility, I think, that we will try and make that happen also. Anyway, the website, as you know, rabbidaniellappin.com. Stop by there and do us both a favor. Be in touch. Ask a question on the Ask the Rabbi page and make sure you are subscribed to Thought Tools, to Susan's Musings, uh, to the Ask the Rabbi mailing, and everything else we do. Thanks very much indeed. I want to wish you a wonderful week of only good times with faith, with friendship, with finance, and with family. I'm Rabbi Daniel Lappin. God bless.